Welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore, James Casina, and Jocelyn Gotto. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. Here's today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. It is Mike Gore here in the studio with a brand new co-host. Her name is Jocelyn Gotto, and for our regular listeners, you more than likely heard her in the episode from the Hillsong Worship and Creative Conference. Jocelyn and I have spent a lot of time traveling the world, meeting with persecuted believers. She's one of the best communicators we've got. She's brilliant. Not only does she bring a gender diversity now to the (laughs) podcast, but more than that, she is a passionate follower of Jesus and it is great to have you with us. Josie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Mike. It's awesome to be here for the Open Doors Live podcast. Um, I have been working for Open Doors for the last three or so years, and I am just constantly inspired and challenged by the persecuted church. And it has been really, truly amazing to uh, be able to travel um, across the world to meet with our brothers and sisters and to see the ways that the Lord has used their faith and their boldness and their just courageous obedience to strengthen um, my own relationship with Jesus. So it really is awesome awesome for me to be here. Something else that I love about the persecuted church is that it's not a tragedy. It's actually one of the most hope-filled things on the planet. It's where we see the light of Jesus breaking through the darkness and hope and faith overcoming fear, where grace reigns over suffering and in some of the most unlikely of circumstances, courage is born. Yeah, I think well, what I love about that is the notion of the persecuted church. It's not, it's not tragic. It's not tragedy. Mm-hmm. You see, you know, we believe here and we talk about it often in the office and and I know I've said it on the podcast before, but wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. In so many ways, it's a hallmark of successful Christianity. And if we're honest with ourselves, it has been for more than 2,000 years. I mean, every single instance of persecution from the Bible, whether directed at Jesus or his followers, was always and only ever linked to either a public profession of faith or a public outworking of faith in community. And now more than 2,000 years on, really nothing has changed. You see, if as an organization, we wanted to stop persecution, it's relatively simple. We need only to ask people to stop talking about Jesus. But for more than 60 years, Open Doors, we've been a gospel advancing ministry. You see, that's what I love about what we do. It's not social justice. Now, there's nothing wrong with social justice, but there's a big difference in my mind between social justice and gospel advancing. Because by supporting the work of Open Doors, it seems crazy, but in so many ways, you're prolonging suffering. We're not here to end persecution. In fact, in many ways, we're not even here to stop it growing. We're here to give people the strength to stand in the face of it and shine as brightly as they can. What people do when they support our work is they invest into the ongoing advancement of the gospel. On today's episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about what I like to call a collision of courage. As an organization, for more than 60 years, we've been encouraging the persecuted church, enabling courage to encourage. And that's what I love about our work is that on both sides of that equation, the persecuted church and the free church, as a ministry, we've been enabling courage. Because you see, as we tell stories of the persecuted church here to people in Australia, what we see is faith come to life. We see people decide to take their faith from what is often a private expression of faith to a public expression of faith. And when they do that, they boldly stand shoulder to shoulder with the persecuted church. And when their brothers in those persecuted nations see the solidarity, what does that do? Well, it enables courage in them to continue sharing the gospel. And so that's why I call it a collision of courage. It's where both sides of the church encourage, 
enable courage in each other. And the Greek word in the Bible for encourage is what we know as parakaleo. And it means to strengthen, to comfort, and to implore. Ultimately, to enable courage. The word appears 105 times in the New Testament, and Paul often uses it in his writings to ensure the church remains unified. And you know what? For me, that is the persecuted church. Unified, hope-filled, Jesus-focused, and courageous. And it's this collision of courage that makes me passionate about sharing stories of the persecuted church. Yeah, Mike, it actually reminds me of a story that we were talking about just a couple of days ago um, of some women, Miriam and Marzier, who um, were sentenced to death after they were caught distributing Bibles, more than 20,000 Bibles throughout Iran. And for those of you who might not know too much about Iran, it was actually ranked the ninth most dangerous country to be a Christian in the 2019 World Watch List. And part of the reason for that is because under Sharia law, which is Islamic law, uh, sharing the gospel with Muslims is illegal. It could see you thrown into prison, which is exactly what happened to Maryam Amaziyah. So the girls would fill backpacks with Bibles and they would put them into letterboxes under the cover of darkness. And after they were caught, they were placed into Evan Prison, one of the most notorious prisons on the planet, where many Christians were regularly beaten, tortured and even killed for their faith. Mary Mamazia were regularly dragged before a judge who told them that the only way to escape their sentence was to deny Jesus. The judge would say to them over and over again, write one sentence saying that you'll convert from Christianity to Islam and we'll let you go. But each time the girls refused to convert and the judge grew more and more frustrated. He said, you don't understand. If you don't do this, you will die here. And the women said, no, you don't understand. We've been threatened with death before. That's not the problem. We're not afraid of death. What we're afraid of is a life without faith, without our saviour, Jesus Christ. Mary Mazia's lawyer told them that they could convert to Islam and they would be able to exploit a loophole which would allow them to tell a lie of convenience and their charges would be dropped. But I love the way that they chose to respond. They said, we will never convert, not even for the sake of momentary convenience. Mary and Marzier were released after 259 days behind bars. They now live in America where they continue to challenge the church to be bold in their faith and to hold on to everything loosely except Jesus. Josie, at the top of the podcast, you talked about the impact the persecuted church has had on your life and your faith. And I've been able to witness that in the years that we've worked together. And more than that, I know that this was one of the first stories, I think, that you heard when you came to work for the ministry. What moves you about that story? It was one of the few stories I had heard prior to working at Open Doors. And something that continues to strike me about this story is that these are just young, beautiful, 20-something-year-old women following Jesus. And in many ways, they're just like me. Um, But the thing that I find just absolutely incredible is the way that they share the gospel. It reminds me of something that um, our founder, Brother Andrew, said. He said, everyone in the world has the right to know who Jesus is. They have the right. Not, it's not a privilege, it's a right. So everyone has a right to a Bible. And what scares me the most about it is that I have the means to fulfill that right. I have the freedom to share Jesus without any fear. I have the ability to give Bibles with very few consequences. And even if I shy away from that kind of boldness, I actually have the means to give, to breathe life into what other people are doing to share the gospel and to proclaim the name of Jesus all over the world. So the thing that challenges me the most in all of that is, why don't I do anything about it? If I have the means, what am I doing with it? 
Yeah, I think that, you know, sitting here and just even hearing you talk about that, I, one, one part of the Miriam and Marzier story that most people don't know, and I'm not even sure you know this, was that we toured them throughout Australia. And, and we had them speaking in churches and sharing their story. And I remember we were taking them to Melbourne to speak in a church. And, and just before that, a few days before that, we got a phone call from someone saying, hey, look, we'd really like to meet Merriam and Mazier. Uh, would it be okay? We're from Iran and, and we're believers and, and we'd love to meet them. And as a ministry, we always need to be a little bit cautious about that sort of stuff because you never know, are they really uh, Christians? Are they people from Iran trying to find out you know, more information on these these two girls, but we ultimately, we vetted them, we talked to them, we figured out that they were people that were okay to meet with Miriam and Mazier. And as we were had them speaking in this church in Melbourne, I remember them talking about the 20,000 Bibles that they had distributed through Tehran in Iran. And in all of that time, they'd never once heard the story of someone who had come to faith. But they said, we always remember God said, you plant the seed and I'll water it. And so we're sitting here in Melbourne and these people ask to meet with them and we bring them up on stage and as they're sitting there, they're this beautiful young couple, a young a man and woman, fairly newly married, uh, look really cool and young and just look like Melbourne basically. And I remember they were sitting there and, and they started to cry and the girls were sitting opposite and they're sort of looking a little bit unnerved and, and, and wondering what, what was all this emotion. And anyway, they started to share their story and they were formerly Muslim. And then after a period of time, they become disin- became disenfranchised with Islam. They decided to give up on Islam and they became atheists. But they said one day uh, they woke up in Tehran and they went to their letterbox and they reached in. And as they're saying this, this guy reaches inside his suit jacket and he starts to pull out this book. And he pulls out this Bible and he holds it up in front of them. And he says, one morning I came out and walked to my letterbox and I found this book in my letterbox. And these people proceed to say that through this book, they found Jesus. Miriam and Mazier break down in tears. These guys are in tears, they're hugging. And we talk to Miriam and Mazier and they say, the 259 days they spent in Evan prison, having never heard once of anyone coming to faith in Christ. They come to, of all places, Melbourne in Australia, sitting opposite two people they've never met, who reaches inside his jacket, pulls out one of the Bibles and says, you know what, we're Christians because of you. And I think for me, you know, too often we look for results in ministry straight away. We say, we've done this 20,000 Bibles into letterboxes in Tehran. God, we've done our part. Now you show up and give me all the praise, all the glory. Let me see how my courage has, has just resulted in hundreds coming to know you. All these girls got were 259 days in prison, threatened with death every day, abused, beaten. And then years after it, they come out and here in Melbourne, Australia, they find someone who found God. Like, can you imagine, like, waking up every day for 259 days in the same prison cell, every day being told, renounce your faith, renounce your faith, and they hold so tightly to it every day and never have seen the fruits of it until that moment. Like, I can't imagine what would have gone through their mind then. No, I mean, I remember talking to the girls and often we talk about 259 days in prison and and how difficult that must be. But it's when you kind of get into the weeds a little bit and you find out what life is really like. Mm. And I remember talking with Miriam and Mazier and they would talk about times where they'll be pulled into a room and a black bag would be put over their head. And they said, we'd be sitting opposite a person. We knew we were going to get punched in the face. We just didn't know when it was coming. And they told me that the fear of not knowing when the punch was coming was one of the most scary things. But then they said, in addition to that, when they were in a cell with other women who they made friends, they would also take them to a cell and then they would abuse the women in the cell next door because of their actions of Christianity. 
And they said, listening to our friends be tortured, abused and killed because of our actions is something that they will never forget. And so, again, it's not until you get in, you think, 259 days in prison, but it's that mental torture day after day after day, the physical torture, the emotion of coming with the fact that there are other people suffering because of your choice. That is astounding that they still, in the middle of that, say, we are not scared of death. We are scared of a life with our faith. Mm. Mike, we're talking about the theme of a collision of courage. And I know you've traveled extensively throughout all different parts of the world. Surely there's a story that comes to mind when you think about the theme of courage. Yeah, I do actually have a story that comes to mind, Josie. And it's a story that you were there for. It was from our time in Central Asia. I'm not sure if you remember meeting Samson. Yeah. For the listeners to our podcast, if you want to hear an incredible story of faith, I'm going to tell you a new part of the story, a part that people don't know. But if you want to hear Samson's, I guess, main part of his story, the main part of his testimony, it is incredible. It is challenging. Well, please check out the pilot episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. We tell Samson's story and we got so much feedback that it was one of those stories that you just want to retell to your friends. I mean, it is full of everything you could ever imagine. Miracles, God speaking, courage, risk, everything. So if you want to hear it, please check out the pilot episode. But today, what I want to do is tell you a part of the story that we didn't tell in that episode. And for those of you who haven't heard it, Samson, the best way to describe him, he's, he's like a wrestler. He's not tall, but he's strong. And I remember as we sat in, in a place in Central Asia, sipping tea and eating food, we waited patiently as he prepared to tell us his story. And Samson told us how in 2002, He went to a nearby country, a country neighboring the region of the world we're in, and said, hey, I'm not going to name it just because of security purposes. The country was incredibly hostile to Christians and was very much controlled by the Taliban. Samson went in as a missionary, and he started to preach as soon as he arrived. Many people accepted Jesus. In fact, many miracles happened, and he said, many strong Islamists became Jesus' followers. He says, this is all possible with Christ. Samson started a church in this country and decided to make a three-metre wooden cross and, more than that, to put it up outside his church building. He went to a local carpenter in a bazaar and gave him specific measurements for the cross. The carpenter didn't know what he was making, for Samson had just given him some drawn paper plans. He wanted two long straight beams, and one beam was to have a notch cut out of it. As I said, the carpenter didn't actually know he was making a wooden cross, and he didn't know until Samson came back to pick up the two pieces of wood, and he said, I asked this carpenter to just drill a hole here and put a screw in that and nail those pieces together. And he says, as soon as the carpenter started to do this, he realised what he was building, and he said to Samson, but it's Christianity. And Samson said, yes. We're Christian. The carpenter said, my hand shouldn't touch it. And Samson said, that's okay. Our hands will touch it. We will just give you money and you can pretend that you didn't know anything, but you should know what happened on this cross because on this cross, Jesus has died and that's why we want to put it up next to our home to pray. Samson then put the cross on his shoulders and walked through the main street of the bazaar filled with 7,000 to 10,000 people. I can't even imagine that, like... These bazaars are full of thousands of people. It's like 
it's always bustling with activity. The streets are so narrow. I can't imagine how dangerous it would have been for Samson to walk through there with that. I mean, look, to give you some context, one of the other parts of Samson's story is I remember him telling me of a time where he was with a friend and some Islamic extremists burst into where they were staying. They had come, they knew he was a Christian and they knew he was a pastor. Uh, they came with black flags, a video camera, black drapes, duct tape and knives. And Samson told me how that's how they kill you. He says they will duct tape your hands to your side and your feet together so you can't move at all. He says then they'll take a knife and they will skin you alive on camera. He says the men began to set up the filming area to film their death. Samson was laying face down on the floor and his friend who he was with was being beaten. He says, in that moment, I felt God say, stand up and walk. And he says, I remember, I thought, okay, stood up. And he said, I walked out the door where there was two of these men standing on either side of the door. He said, it was as though I was invisible. They didn't even see me. When I got outside, I raised the alarm. And he says, ultimately, the men got spooked. They fled. But I mean, that's the risk. We're talking about being skinned alive. And I remember sitting with this guy. He said, Mike, there are only two things the body can't fight against, hunger and fear. He says, in that moment, I wasn't, I wasn't scared, but my body, he says, I couldn't control it. My muscles were twitching, twitching. My arms were kind of flapping, my legs moving. I wasn't scared, but I just couldn't control my body's response to fear. And I promise you, as you sit opposite a guy recounting that and showing you the mannerisms of how his body moved, you feel every single chilling moment of it. And so here you jump back into the story and he's walking down the main street of this nation with a three meter cross on his shoulder. I mean, you talk about courage, yeah. incredible. You can't go unnoticed with a three meter cross on your back. Impossible. And more than that, he tells me when he got back to his house and his church, they put up the cross in the front yard and him and his friend had communion at the foot of it. You see, that's, for me, a perfect summation of Samson. He is a Jesus-focused, courageous follower of Christ who has a desperate desire that wherever he goes, people would come into relationship with Jesus. You know, there's, there's so much of this story uh, and the imagery of Samson walking down the main street with a cross over his shoulders that echoes that of Jesus carrying his cross up to the hill of Calvary. But in light of today's theme, what does the collision of courage truly call us to do? In Matthew 16, 24, the NIV says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, it calls us to be bold in our faith and take it from our private lives to our public lives. Samson said to me as we kind of closed our time with him, Mike, God called us to do things that we never thought we could do. God said it would be light for him in this dark world. We will bring the light of Christ. Jesus is the light and we need to give everyone Christ. In fact, that's why Christ came. Wow. See, I hear things like that and I hear Samson's story and it makes me wonder, what does that look like for me? It, um, it reminds me of this quote from a woman in Syria and she said, Would you like to know how Mary felt as she was holding her son's dead body? You can ask any mother from Aleppo. She has experienced the feeling of carrying her son's dead body. Would you like to know how Jesus was feeling when he was carrying his cross and awaiting the time of his death? You can ask our children. They are carrying their crosses and are awaiting their death. If I have really collided with the courage of the persecuted church, then what does it look like for me for in my life to be bold in my faith and to take my faith from my private life to my public life? And 
What does it practically look like for me to take up my cross? There's a big difference to holding the weight of the cross and carrying the cross. I remember a brother, a good friend of ours from Iraq said, when I look at the church in the West, I see believers who are willing to sort of carry the weight of the cross, but they're not willing to walk with it. Whereas the people in his country, he said in Iraq, not only do we hold the weight of the cross, but we walk with it. You see, I think as we ask or begin to ask those really introspective questions of, well, what does this mean for me? How can I do this? What, what needs to change? You see, that's where it begins. I realizing that it's one thing to simply hold the weight of the cross, but it's another thing to walk with it. An active faith, an outward faith. You see, too often, I think, me personally, faith is something in my private life. It's not in my public life. Whereas the persecuted church, it's all about the public side of it. You know, a brother in Indonesia said to me, part of the proof you believe in Jesus is that you share him. For me, the genesis to that, or I guess the journey I took on trying to even learn, why do I start with that? was being able to articulate, well, who is Jesus to me? And more than that, what has he done in my life? Because what I found was any, in those moments of sort of obedience, where I kind of think, here we go, I'm going to do it, I'm going to talk about Jesus. Man, my language was wanting. Articulating who Jesus was and what he's done in my life was one of the more complex, twisted, convoluted statements that would ever come out of my mouth. And I, I remember it was sort of off the back of riding in Ubers and cabs with many Muslim drivers. And I thought to myself, this is my opportunity to share the gospel. So why is it that I can't accurately or even effectively talk about Jesus? And so I started uh, and I even gave, as you know, the team here a challenge. I said, I want you to go away and write one paragraph on who Jesus is to you and one paragraph on what he's done in your life, because I want us to start committing that language to memory. So in the moments we ha have opportunity to share the gospel, we know how to talk about Jesus. And I think for any of the listeners today, if you're looking for some helpful, hopefully, tips or advice on sharing the gospel, particularly with Muslims, but for that matter, anyone who doesn't share our same faith belief, I know when I'm in cabs, I will often start by asking drivers about their family, about their lives, what they do, how long they've been driving for. And ultimately, we'll get to a point where I say, do you mind if I ask you a really personal question? Inevitably, they've always said yes. And I'll simply say to them, well, could you tell me who is Jesus to you? And then when they finish that, I simply say, well, would you mind if I told you who Jesus was to me? And in each of those occasions, they've never said no. Now, I want to be clear, they've also never on the spot given their life to Jesus and they've rebutted and argued everything I've said. But the reality is, at least in that moment, not only was I able to respect their belief and their viewpoint, but I had language to identify who Jesus was and what he's done in my life. Yeah. It actually reminds me of um, a believer that you met uh, in, in Central Asia who said, Jesus is my closest relative. And to him, articulating who Jesus is, is as simple as that. It's, and it's so relational. It's like everybody has, everybody has a relative. Everyone has a friend, a relationship. And I could sit here and talk for hours about my relatives, but why can't I do that about Jesus? Yeah, what I loved about that story that you, you talk about was I remember sitting with that guy and he told me how he converted from Islam to Christianity and then 14 or so of the family members wow. came around to reconvert him. And as I was sitting downstairs in the room that we were sitting in, he says, they were saying horrific things about Jesus, really insulting things about Jesus. And this brother said to them, Jesus is my closest relative and you will not speak about him like that. 
And this is a guy who, in his own words, said he had gone from being a terrorist to someone who loved Jesus. And I mean, this isn't over years. This is a new believer. Jesus is my closest relative, and you will not speak about him like that. I love what you were saying before as well about... um how whenever you're talking to your taxi driver or whoever it is, it's not like in that moment they became Christian, but in that moment you've uh, been obedient to what the Lord has told you to do, which is to tell people about Jesus. Um, and in many ways, the same as Mary Mamazi, yeah, how all they have to do is plant the seed and the Lord will water it in that moment. Effectively, that's what you're doing. You're planting the seed. You don't have, they don't have to go from zero to a hundred in believing in Jesus in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we sort of bring this episode in for a close, one of the things I'll say is that that's that beautiful collision of courage. It's where the so-called free church and the persecuted church collide. It's where our obedience to support them and their stories enable courage in us. And more than that, the support that people offer the persecuted church through open doors, particularly financially, but also through prayer. Well, you know what? It enables courage in the persecuted church because you're investing into people like Samson, people who want to share the gospel, who will say that part of the proof you believe in Jesus is you share him or that he's my closest relative and you won't speak about him like that. What I love about this ministry is that when people support it financially, they are investing into the ongoing forward movement of a gospel advancing ministry that's been doing it for more than 60 years. Yeah. And there's actually an awesome opportunity coming up to um, stand shoulder to shoulder with the persecuted church to stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to be a part of that and I'm going to meet them in this collision of courage. And it's something called one with them. What we're asking people to do is to commit one day's wage to the persecuted church, to draw a cross on your wrist and to share it on social media and effectively take your faith from your private life to your public life. And we'd really love for you to join us in that. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the, the heart behind the cross on the wrist is is probably twofold. Is number one is that it's, to be brutally frank and honest, is it's a way of sort of getting it out there and promoting it to the world in the West to say, hey, you know, hopefully something cool is happening. I want to be part of it. But secondly, particularly in believers in Egypt and the Middle East, many of them will have a cross tattooed on the inside of their wrist. The reason being, they want to make sure that they are publicly and visibly Christian. And particularly in Islamic cultures or Muslim cultures, the existence of a cross, you can't hide it. Every time you shake hands with someone, every time you pay for something at a, uh, a local shop, people see you're Christian. And I remember one person said, well, even if they kill me, every part of my body will tell them I'm a Christian. So what we want to do is, again, truly stand shoulder to shoulder by simply drawing a cross on the inside of our wrists. And so for all of our listeners today, whether you live in Australia, New Zealand, all over the world, we're asking you this Easter to give one day's wage to the persecuted church. On the 17th of April, we are asking people to stand one with them in the persecuted church. You can jump online to onewiththem.org to pledge your support today. Other than that, that's it for this episode. So, Jossie, thanks so much. It's great to have you on this show. We look forward to doing heaps more episodes with you. And for all of our listeners, we look forward to being with you next month. Thanks for listening to Open Doors Live with your hosts, Mike Gore and James Kazina. Because of your support, we're able to bring the persecuted church to life. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au.